that Nick Rays was looking for a place to settle down for a while. He'd started touring when he was a teenager, and had been going steadily for the last ten years. Now he wanted to take a break. After lengthy negotiations with Nick and his manager, Raymond Knorr, I received signed contracts for a season of artist-in-residency. It was a coup. Well, a semi-coup. The Chicago Symphony Orchestra is one of the world's greatest, but some were skeptical that Mr. Rays would decide to reside in the city of big shoulders, as compared to, say, the city that never sleeps. Still, Chicago is a toddling town, and Mr. Rays took us up on our offer. On a Tuesday morning in August, six months after the contracts hit the filing cabinet, I found a note on my desk saying, They're here. I'm the managing director at Orchestra Hall. I negotiate the contracts and knew when to expect them, but even signed contracts in the world of the artistic elite can be tenuous. I was happy to know they'd arrived. It was a concrete promise of a prosperous season. I also knew his arrival could be used as an endless source of torture for my sister Cass. I speed-dialed her number and waited for her to pick up. Cassie had thirteen years of classical piano training, but gave it up to study massage therapy and herbal medicine. She said all the tension of the competitive world gave her the desire to loosen people up, inside and out. She still followed the classical scene and had taken particular interest in Nick Ray's. Hello? She picked up. Shine your shoes, the shadow's in town. I dubbed him the shadow during negotiations, as he'd arrive at every meeting dressed entirely, albeit fashionably, in black Armani. He wore jet-black sunglasses that remained on his well-chiseled face throughout all meetings. He would quietly move his chair an inch or two behind Raymond's in order to observe the proceedings from a more removed position. He nodded occasionally when Raymond addressed him, but spoke not one word. He seemed unreal to me, like a cartoon character, ageless and still. I thought his affectations mildly ridiculous. What? My sister's voice called me back to the present. Pete, who's in town? Your desired one, Nick Rays. He's here, hot diggity dog. Hold on a minute, Pete. She turned her head from the phone, and I heard her talking to her daughter. Not that one, Vi, the little one next to it. Violet had been born three years ago, and I hadn't had an uninterrupted conversation with Cassie since. Okay, I'm back. Now, you know your sworn duty, right? Absolutely. Bring him on over for veggie burgers. That's it, she laughed. Cassie no longer had a relationship with Violet's father. When she was in the mood, which wasn't often, she would remind me of my duty as her big brother to introduce her to my handsome and available friends. Since most my friends were average and spoken for, I was not overburdened by the task. Okay, I'll bring him over. Then, after dinner, he can sit in the rocking chair and dirndle vi on his knee. She can call him Uncle Mr. Rays. Yes, that's exactly the vision I get, Pete, she agreed. Only I think dirndle is a skirt yodelers wear. Anyway, stop in and give me the scoop when you get home. I won't see him today, but I'll report in when I do. Okay, I gotta go. We're baking a cake. Uh, don't forget the old eggshell in the batter check, I added, just as a suggestion. Bye, Peter, she answered ungratefully and hung up. Cass and I shared a two-flat. Both of us had gone through some hard times in the past few years, 
and it helped to have family near. We still teased each other like we were kids, but we looked out for each other, too. Peter, my intercom spoke. Raymond Knorr on line one. I took a breath and picked up the phone. Raymond, you've arrived, I said with a burst of professional geniality. Yes, indeed. We're anxious to come down and get settled in. Good. We're all set for you. The artistic staff will be here in the morning, ready for introductions. All right, then, Peter. We'll be there at ten sharp. That's fine, Raymond. We'll see you then. I hung up the phone and went over a mental list of preparations for their arrival. One of the provisions of the contract was an office for Nick, easily accessible from the stage and out of the way of the flow of traffic. Raymond had stated clearly that Nick was a very private person. His life is his music, he said. He doesn't have much energy left over for socializing. I was surprised to hear that, since most of his press showed him gallivanting about town. He went on to reiterate that Nick wanted as little contact with the staff as possible so as to concentrate on his work. Raymond would handle any questions or problems. So we moved one of the production offices upstairs and put Mr. Ray's down on the stage level in the back of the building. It had one window that faced the alley. When my lovely assistant Deborah came down to check out the office, she commented on the bleak view. I'd already received complaints from the production crew about the move, even though the space was mostly used for storage, and I wasn't up for any more discussions on the matter. I assured her that it was a great view and showed her how to bend her neck, being careful not to break it, at just the right angle to catch a sliver of sky above the top of the neighboring building. She was not impressed, but it was the best we could do for him. I hoped Raymond would approve. Raymond Knorr drove a hard bargain. Throughout the negotiations, he'd been animated and congenial, but I knew there was an edge underneath. There was never a doubt that he had things very much under control. He'd been Nick's manager throughout his career, about fifteen years as far as I knew. Some people, many people in the classical realm, scoffed at Nick's commercial conquests. The Nike ad didn't set well with the traditionalists. Yet Raymond had made Nick a megastar, and that seemed to sit just fine with him. I read that Raymond had played the violin himself as a young man. He was involved in local concerts, nothing national. He came from a wealthy East Coast family who were on the board of several art foundations. After he decided not to pursue a career as a performer, he began teaching. He taught for twenty years, and then one day stumbled upon Nick Ray's. I wondered how he felt the first time he heard him play. Nick's bio says Raymond spotted him in a high school recital where he'd gone to hear his niece play. He must have fallen off his folding chair at the first sound of him. I didn't much care for Nick's personality, if he had one, but I admired his talent. It was true and pretty much unchallenged. He composed as well, and that was where I read about him, not in the tabloids, but in the notes and the sounds he created. Running behind the crescendos, clinging to the dotted eighths, lay always the sensation of something unformed, unsaid, maybe untouched, and mostly unrelenting. I'd heard a recording of his first symphony when I was twenty-eight. That would have made Nick somewhere around twenty. As I listened, all the things I longed for, really longed for, 
starting with Lucy McAllister in the seventh grade, snuck out from my bones and brushed up against the skin on the back of my neck. That familiar feeling of desire made so pungent by the inability to attain. It seemed odd to me, as even then, when Nick was probably twenty, he was already a big name in the classical world. He could have had Lucy McAllister and her big sister Celia, too. Raymond nabbed this wonder boy when he was ripe for the picking, and he hasn't let go since. They arrived the next morning at ten on the dot. They were standing at the reception desk before anyone even had a chance to utter a nervous laugh at the water cooler. Raymond was charming. He was the one on stage in the office, but even as he talked, we were all stealing glances at the man in black. Nick sat there cool and quiet, allowing Raymond to field all questions. It was a short meeting, actually just introductions and a few words of welcome. Myself, our artistic director, Bob Mosher, the symphony conductor, and his assistant shook hands all around. Now that they were here, everyone was excited and ready to launch the season. I admit I felt a certain charge at meeting Nick again. It's hard to explain how a musician takes a piece of familiar music and makes it an extension of himself. I've heard many great performers do this. Nick did this. But he could take it one step further and make the music an intimate extension of the listener. It was a powerful thing to be able to move the hearts of strangers. Nick carried some of that power with him, and everyone in the office knew it. There were several more meetings to come with the artistic staff. After having obtained the deal, I was no longer directly involved with the two of them. I took them on a brief tour of the building and left them in their office. It was two months before I saw Nick again in the light of day.